Friends and enemies, welcome to the Progress Report. I am your host, Duncan Kinney. Recording here in Amiskwichi, Wiskaigan, otherwise known as Edmonton, here in Treaty 6 territory. We're back. After a long and restful winter break, uh, I went to Mexico with my family. I have to say, it is really nice to wear shorts and t-shirts at Christmas. Um, but I do have to say, I'm just not built for the heat. I know Jim got some solid video game time in over the holidays while he was uh, convalescing. And uh, isn't there some like Magic the Gathering thing that you do over Christmas that you like always for, mark out for? Holiday Cube. Holiday Cube. Jim. Holiday Jim is. Cube. Jim is a holiday cube man. Um, it was also just nice to take a book uh, and read it on the beach and take a break from the Alberta hellscape. But folks, we are right back in the shit again. And today we've got a story that could literally change Alberta as we know it. And this story was published January 8th in The Intercept, not, uh, not a publication that usually Albertan political watchers are reading. And frankly, uh, the Alberta political and media establishment didn't register at all. It was written by Murtaza Hussein. And uh, quite frankly, that's his story is extremely important, and that's what we're talking about today. The headline was, Imperial Oil, Canada's Exxon subsidiary, ignored its own climate change research for decades, archive shows. But the story was far more than that, and I'd, I'd really argue that the details that Mortaza dug up in this story lay the building blocks for the kind of petro-nationalist province that Alberta has become. And to discuss this story, we're very lucky to have uh, Murtaza with us on the line from New York City. Murtaza, welcome. Welcome to the Progress Report. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, Murtaza, you are a journalist. You're, you mostly write about um, you know, national security, foreign policy, human rights, but, but you have kind of dipped your toe into this kind of like climate change, you know, oil and business story. But, but you've previously written for The New York Times, The Guardian, you know, Al Jazeera English. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're so lucky to have you on the show. Yeah, I, I've started to segue into climate stuff the last few years, so I'm glad to discuss it uh, as much as I can. So if you haven't read the story, it'll be in the show notes, and I, and I do recommend you read it. Um, but, but let's just give it a kind of a brief summary, right? Like, it's come to late in the past decade or so that big fossil fuel companies knew what was coming when it came to climate change before anyone else, and that they actively suppressed this information and also engaged in a deliberate PR war uh, of climate denialism and obfuscation. Um, now, in the United States, we've got kind of multiple lawsuits wending their way through the courts, similar to the kind of big tobacco lawsuits, where governments are trying, are trying to extract some measure of compensation from these fossil fuel companies who lied about the effects of climate change, who deliberately obfuscated about the effects of climate change before anyone else. And, and you know, this story now has kind of reached into Canada with this imperial oil story. Um, am I characterizing your story fairly? Like, like let's let's get into the the details of this story. Yeah, that's definitely a fair characterization. Essentially, as you mentioned, Imperial is the Canadian subsidiary of Exxon Mobil, and over the course of several decades, um, you know, they engaged in a pretty deliberate and brazen uh, effort at clouding the reality of the and their environmental impact. Uh, including on the climate. Now, you know, it's something which is known uh, generally, but what's different now is that thanks to a set of climate researchers, we have documentation internal to Imperial going back to the 60s, which essentially show uh, not only how they developed this knowledge very systematically to uh, of how the impact was uh, manifesting, but the steps they took to 
cloud public understanding and even, uh, so to speak, go on the offensive against people who they felt were scrutinizing their record and possibly posing a threat to their business model. And and you've got an amazing quote in your story, and it's from uh, Imperial Oil's own internal magazine. And I, I think it's worth just reading out. In a 1998 article published in Imperial's in-house magazine, former, former Imperial CEO Robert Peterson wrote that there is, quote, absolutely no agreement among climatologists on whether or not the planet is getting warmer, or if it is, on whether the warming is the result of man-made factors or natural variations in the climate. He added that, quote, carbon dioxide is not a pollutant, but an essential ingredient of life on the planet. This is, uh, this is not... This is 1998. Yeah, that's 1998. And Mr. Peterson said, uh, you know, he said that at a time where we know from the internal documents of Imperial that uh, his company knew very well that uh, carbon dioxide is not uh, not a pollutant. It's not good for the environment. Uh, it was warping the climate even at that time in a very dangerous way. And, you know, it, it's worth actually highlighting that for a long time, the people in the world who had the best understanding of climate science were actually the fossil fuel companies because they felt very, it was very important to know specifically what was happening and how it was working because they wanted to ensure that they designed their own facilities in a manner which uh, accommodated future developments like optic ice melt. Now, Imperial, for many, many years before that specific article written by Mr. Peterson knew very intimately that you know, the Arctic was melting. It was melting as a result of their operations and the emissions of uh, carbon in the atmosphere. And they were planning accordingly. They were already making plans not just to uh, change the way they build facilities, but even to uh, look at new shipping and construction and extraction opportunities in the Arctic. So essentially, the CEO of this company was gaslighting the Canadian public and the world, really, while privately he knew that what he was saying was diametrically opposite to his own ex expert findings uh, on imperial environmental impact. Yeah, and these folks were like literally rubbing their hands together at the prospect of of cracking open the Arctic to you know oil and gas exploration. You know that that this would become possible under climate change, right? Yeah, exactly. And we've actually seen in the years since that uh, Exxon, the parent company of Imperial, has acted upon these new quote-unquote opportunities. They scoped them out, they understood the science, and now they are developing uh, those, that infrastructure to export the Arctic. And it's funny because these 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 uh, climate denialist talking points are, are still around, especially with us here in Alberta. You know, that, that quote... Carbon dioxide is not a pollutant, but an essential ingredient of life on this planet. That was from 1998. That was from Imperial Oil CEO Robert Peterson. In 2016, the Premier of Alberta, Jason Kenney, a man who is a, a huge fan of the oil and ga gas industry, it's, its number one booster, had a tweet which reads, CO2 is not pollution. Life would cease to exist without it. Our forests breathe CO2. Like 18 years later, we've got you know the Premier of our province uh, literally laundering the same you know, tired, old, oil and gas, climate denialism talking points that were being said back in 1998. Yeah, that's precisely it. And look, that, that was just one example of Mr. Peterson's statement. In the years before and after, he continued to make very outlandish statements about totally, you know, 
flying in the face of his own company's climate research, uh, more or less to the same effect that carbon dioxide is good. You know, nobody has any idea about what the reality of climate change is, and essentially uh, leave us alone because you know this is not a real problem or it's not as much of a problem as people are saying it is. And the most important thing to prioritize is our continued uh, operation. So these are primary source documents that you're working off of, right? Like these these were uh, documents from the Imperial Oil Archive from the Glenbow Museum in Calgary, Alberta. Is that correct? That's correct. These are uh, documents that Imperial had uh, donated to this museum some time ago, uh, perhaps not considering that there were things in there which would be very embarrassing or shed light on their role in the climate crisis. And some researchers on climate change, uh, they consulted this archive independently once they learned that the imperial documents were there and they surfaced these internal documents of the company showing their operations, PR, uh, research, and uh, surveillance going back many decades. So what you're saying, though, is that, I mean, if you're a Calgary-based researcher who wants to do more digging on this, uh, these documents are available to anyone who wants to dig through them at the Glenbow Museum, right? Yeah, that's right. There's a lot of stuff in there. Um, I think a lot of it has been tapped, but certainly uh, I would not imagine, you know, it depends on the angle you want to look at. If we're looking at the climate angle, some of that's been covered, but this is a very large company. It's ExxonMobil, essentially. And there are a lot of things in there which may be of interest to people. Of course. There's also an image used in the story that's it's probably going to be the show art for the podcast that I just want to highlight for the people who haven't kind of read the story and clicked the link. The caption of the image is uh, this. John Armstrong, then chair of Imperial Oil, photographed on April 20th, 1977, surrounded by 49 barrels of crude oil the average amount of oil consumed by each Canadian that year. And in this photograph, this kind of like old white dude in a kind of poorly fitting suit is kind of awkwardly sitting on a barrel of oil, surrounded in the background by these stacks and stacks of barrels of oil. And it just has a very like MTV Cribs, opening up the fridge to show bottles of champagne kind of energy going on. And, and it really just kind of echoes a lot of the rhetoric that we're seeing from oil and gas kind of like petronationalists these days, right? Like it's, it's really cold in Edmonton right now. It's like minus 30, minus 35. And these, these folks are saying, well, like, oh, if you don't like oil and gas, like uh, sh- shut off your furnace and freeze to death. And it's like this is, this is literally the same flex that these people were saying like back in 1977, you know? Yeah, exactly. Not not much has changed. The only time the rhetoric really changes from this triumphalist uh, default is when these companies come under public scrutiny. So now you see in recent years, with the climate crisis becoming so acute and so undeniable, uh, they're changing their tune a little bit because they want to be in line with public perception or not wildly out of line with public perception. They don't want to sound crazy, even though if you look at their historical record, they've sounded crazy many times in the past and wildly irresponsible probably criminally irresponsible. Um, But today, you know, they may tone it down a bit, but if the public pressure relents, they'll go back to saying the same things they were saying before, that carbon dioxide is good, that the climate world is not warming up, or climate science uh, is not settled, uh, per se. Uh, You know, it's just, they've managed to continue doing the same thing that they want to do throughout this time, but certainly they've been flexible in their public posturing 
depending on how much scrutiny they feel themselves to be under. Uh, capitalism is nothing if not flexible. But, I mean, I think there's a, there's some info in your story that kind of goes beyond the kind of well-trod ground, well-tread ground of, of kind of your usual fossil fuel companies denying climate change. And and that's really this this idea of kind of going on the offensive and putting their kind of enemies under surveillance. And there's a quote from your story that I'm just going to kind of read out here. Despite going on the PR offensive, by the 1970s, Imperial was becoming yet more alarmed by the growing public criticism of its activities. Its response to this perceived threat was typical of many powerful yet paranoid institutions, surveillance. As public pressure mounted, Imperial began putting together dossiers on organizations that it accused of politicization of the fossil fuel business. A 1976, reported, a 1976 report titled Canadian Pressure Groups, prepared by the company's public affairs department, offered detailed profiles of six Canadian NGOs alleged to have targeted the company over environmental or social issues. Among the information they gathered was financial data about the operations of these organizations, along with physical addresses and information about their key spokespeople. I mean, Jesus Christ. Yeah, so they start doing surveillance on some of their perceived uh, public adversaries, really just small NGOs uh, in Canada who were trying to shed light on their environmental record. And an environmental record, which Imperial knew was negative, as having negative impacts on the Canadian environment, the global environment. Um, and their response was, Part of the response was to start building dossiers on some of these, uh, what they describe as pressure groups. So they were gathering information about their finances, about their key spokespeople, about their addresses. They were certainly going on the offensive because they were very paranoid about what may happen to them if a public outcry, you know, this is the 1970s, build up to the level that it starts putting curbs on their operations or stopping them, stop them from doing certain things they'd like to do in Canada. Um, so, and there's a really mismatch in power here because, you know, NGOs, they're just very small. They're not multi-billion dollar companies like ExxonMobil and subsidiaries, but they treated them as though they were a serious threat to their business. So these organizations, these NGOs from the 70s wouldn't even be around anymore, right? Like these would be tiny organizations, kind of like pre-Greenpeace. Do you remember the names of these organizations? Who are we talking about here? Yeah, some of the organizations are the Canadian Arctic Resources Committee, Committee for an Independent Canada, uh, Consumers Association of Canada, Energy Probe. They're organizations which not even all were focused specifically on the environment. They're also focused on uh, perceived predatory practices by the company in general, but they were looped in under the category of non-governmental adversaries. And certainly one of the things that Imperial was most concerned about was scrutiny of the envi its environmental record, even as far back as the 1970s, when it was becoming, even at that early stage, highly apparent to the company that they were doing serious harm to the Canadian environment. Yeah, and it just kind of gets worse, right? Like beyond the kind of uh, paranoid surveillance of their perceived enemies, you've got a, a quote from a document in 1990 that I think is extremely damning. Uh, from the story, the, the quote is, in the document, Imperial warned that stakeholders in government and private industry should be careful to not outgreen each other, which just seems like 
uh, outright kind of collusion to kind of stop cl- early climate action in the 90s. Yeah, like, this is the thing. Their number one priority at all times, no matter what, was stopping regulation. They did not want their activities to be regulated. Everything else, the environment, the climate, you know, the social impact of their operations was secondary at best. Their single-minded purpose was let's not get out of hand and start passing laws to constrain the fuel industry. And, you know, this is, everything else has to be seen through that lens. They were not, they didn't want uh, companies to start creating a cycle, you could call it maybe a virtuous cycle, whereby they start competing to uh, pass or improve their environmental practices or scale back certain destructive practices. Um, They wanted to maintain the status quo as long as possible. And quite frankly, that remains their position today. They are trying to this very day to extract as much as possible, uh, keep their operating margins as broad as possible. And, you know, there's a very grim irony to this that look at that document and some of the other documents in there. Imperial knew well before the rest of us that we need to switch to renewables. Society is not sustainable. This extractive fossil fuel uh, energy system is not sustainable. We need to switch. And they were very well placed to make that switch a long time ago. Uh, They knew what needs to be done. They were gaming out how it could be done. But they didn't do it because they constant, they've constantly evinced a very short-termist uh, attitude. The path of least resistance, the path of most immediate short-term profit, is simply to keep pumping as much oil as you can for as long as you can. Had they instead geared their company a few decades ago around the time of these documents towards renewables, they would have had first mover advantage. They would have been able to capitalize on this wide-open industry and all the benefits that would accrue from that financially. But they didn't. They just continued fighting against any regulation, fighting against any change in what business as usual. And not only that, right, but but actually moving, meaningfully moving on climate change in the 90s would have been far, like an order of magnitude easier and an order of magnitude cheaper to actually address the problem as opposed to 20 to 30 years later where we've just continued to stack up these these kind of carbon emissions in the atmosphere. It's, it, I mean, you read this story, I read the story, you know, and you get angry, you get outraged. And then we say this evil shit out loud to each other over the course of this podcast and I'm getting even angrier like like this is just straight up supervillain shit right like what, what's going through your head when you're writing this story well you know unfortunately it's kind of become known that exxon did know about the impact of climate change a very very long time ago and you know these shocking statements by imperial ceo and additional documentation now which has come out showing the level of texture to which they knew uh, and, you know, the very, very early dates at which they knew, it just compounds the level of uh, outrage at these companies. And I think that, you know, at the very minimum, there should be financial restitution, there should be likely legal restitution. Climate change, maybe to some people, for many years, it could be described as an abstraction, but you know, this is a continent which is effectively on fire right now. There are 
record heat waves all over the world. This is the last decade recorded as the hottest decade on record. 2019 was the second hottest year on record. We're at the very preliminary stages of something very terrible. And if you look at these documents, you see how this happened, and even more infuriatingly, how easily it could have been avoided. It did not have to happen. It could have, a few decisions by a few people could have averted from all of us the catastrophe, which is now starting to unfold. Yeah. And, and so you reached out to Imperial for a comment, right? What did they have to say for themselves when, when you asked them about this story? Well, they said that we take climate science very seriously. You know, we're investing in uh, renewables and we're investing in research. They didn't really address uh, the issue of the past simulation at the critical moments. And look, they're pumping more oil than ever. That's the reality. Like, whatever anyone says about anything else, uh, their extracting, extract, extractive operations have increased year over year. So, Anything else but that is just commentary. Uh, The reality is very stark. I mean, the obvious analog here, right, is the lawsuits by, you know, the United, several United States states against the tobacco companies, um, where ultimately they were able to extract, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars from these tobacco companies for lying about the effects of cigarettes on people's health. And I think when we kind of examine why this story really just flew over everyone's head here in Alberta, the kind of like home of oil and gas, corporate power in in Canada, it was because this is the long-term play, right? Like the long-term play is for states to sue these fossil fuel companies for the damages of climate change. And we're talking an order of magnitude more money than when it comes to cigarettes, right? Yeah, like... The tobacco example is very apt in the sense that the type of lying was quite similar, but the scope of this is something completely on another level. It will affect every human being, every living thing on the planet. It will call into question the very existence of human civilization as we currently are familiar with it. Uh, This is not a hyperbolic... uh, interpretation of it. This is a existential threat to human beings, to human beings living in an industrial, post-industrial society. We may not be able to live the way we've lived before because of this. People who've lived in places for thousands of years and they have to leave those places, crop failures, disease, uh, the death of other species, uh, the eradication of habitats, the uh, unlivability of entire continents, whole vast swaths of the world, like Australia, as we're seeing at the moment. It's we're talking about something which is on the scale of Nuremberg, uh, as opposed to necessarily tobacco cases, which were also very great. Something we've never really encountered before, and that's why, you know, there's will be some legal accountability. There'll be some civil accountability for this, but it's very hard to actually gain justice for a crime which on this scale. Mm-hmm. It is. And, and when, when we examine why Alberta's political media elite ignored this story, it's because Alberta's political and media elite are so intertwined with the oil and gas industry here and that they're essentially one and the same. And, and that's, uh, but this is why it's so important to have you on kind of talking about this story. 
the very hard and awkward segue that I'm going to make is is there's another kind of big Alberta story that's happened recently that, that crosses over with the work that you do for the Intercept, and and you know we're based out of Edmonton, and the tragedy of kind of Ukraine International Airlines flight 752 has kind of hit this city hard, right? The, this is a flight that was accidentally shot down by Iran shortly after takeoff, killing all 176 people on board. Amongst them, you know, many Canadians and immigrants who are making their lives in Canada, you know, 27 of whom were from Edmonton. Um, you know, we recently had a memorial cer- ceremony here. Thousands of people packed in a, you know, a room that was at capacity to kind of grieve publicly. You know, it's touched a lot of lives. It's, it's just a tremendously sad story, just needless death. And the other, and I know you've written a lot about Iran and Iraq and the kind of situation on the ground there. And in the context of this horrible tragedy, we also had the United States and Iran kind of going right up to the precipice of aggressive war, right? And, and thankfully, it seems like Iran and the U.S. seem to have stepped back from their aggressive postures. Is, is that a fair kind of characterization? You're, you're paying attention to this more than I am. Yeah, well, look, the Trump administration, at the bare minimum, has about a year left in office. And they've shown themselves absolutely committed uh, to one foreign policy goal, which is a confrontation with Iran. Not for any real good reason. The Obama administration had gone the opposite direction. It seems like Mr. Trump uh, is simply committed to taking a contrarian position to whatever Mr. Obama did. And, you know, I think that what uh, Justin Trudeau said about this shooting down of the plane is quite apt. It's not that it's the United States' fault, but this entire standoff is unnecessary. And if it were not for the standoff, that plane would not have been shot down most people would have been alive. There's no need for this confrontation because there was already a negotiation which had been completed successfully and offered at the bare minimum an off-ramp for this 40 years of uh, tension between the United States and Iran. Uh, it's just a great tragedy. And unfortunately, when this war, when this confrontation, the outcome of that can be quite unpredictable and more often than not, innocent people suffer. Yeah, and when it comes to the investigation around the flight, it sounds like Canadian um, experts are kind of slowly, you know, getting their visas worked out and getting on the ground and starting up their investigation now, a process that's actually taken longer than it otherwise would because um, Canada and Iran don't have uh, any formal diplomatic relations. Um, I mean, the thing that I've been keeping half an eye on is the, the essentially the situation on the ground in Iran right now. The, the killing of Qasim Soleimani by the Americans on Iraqi soil seems to have galvanized a huge portion of the Iranian populace to be like, oh, fuck you, like, well, you're, gonna, you're just going to murder one of our top leaders. But then this, this simultaneously, this, this, um, this shooting down of the you know, Flight 752 has also galvanized you know, another section of Iranian society to be like, well, fuck the regime, like, this is awful, right? What's, what's your sense of the kind of situation on the ground in Iran right now? Well, you know, Iran is a very big country, and even a small country, people, even a town, people can be very divided. And talking about 80 million people, um, you know, views are divided, but also there's no contradiction necessarily between protesting against the killing of Qasem Soleimani and protesting against the shooting down of a plane, because they're both wedded essentially under the framework of national pride. Um, people who don't like the government still could be offended by a foreign government killing one of their own leaders. 
people who uh, were, went out of those protests could still be offended by their own government failing to defend their people and said you know, harming them in an inept attempt to uh, manage a standoff of the United States. And some were reported, a lot of people who went to the first protest also went to the second protest. Just the other day, a story came out by CBC of Stephen Harper speaking to a crowd of presumably conservative psychopaths at this conference in New Delhi called the the Rizina Dialogue, an event that seems to be connected to Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi, himself a war criminal, an extremely problematic figure, where Stephen Harper said, quote, without a change in the nature of the government of Tehran, the Middle East will continue to be in turmoil. Uh, how would you interpret that quote? Well, Stephen Harper is very ideologically aligned with this neoconservative in the United States and elsewhere, and they're obsessed with Iran. They're obsessed with changing the government in Iran. Uh, it's just become like a fixation. And Mr. Harper, I think the interesting thing about his presence at this uh, dialogue is that he still wants to be a public figure, and he's sort of an elder statesman to a certain strand of the conservative movement in Western countries. They'd like to see a change in the government. It's very unlikely it's going to happen outside of some sort of external intervention. At the same time, such an intervention is very difficult to accomplish because it's a very cool society, and I think there's not much appetite in the U.S. or elsewhere for another war on the scale of the Iraq War. They may try to bomb certain government sites inside Iran and hope that results in enough chaos that the government itself falls. But even that, I find it to be very a slim chance they're going to change the government because it's not just one or two people. There's an entire system. They have a monopoly on force inside the country. They have the weapons with the military and the revolutionary guards. They've been trying to change the Iranian government since the Iranian government came into power. It's not to say that it can never happen, but we've been hearing the same thing for many, many decades. And... Uh, even protests, there's been big protest movements in Iran in the past that haven't resulted in a change in the government. So I find Mr. Harper and others, their message is consistent, and yet it's not something I haven't heard before. I mean, I don't think you can look at this statement as anything but Stephen Harper openly stumping for you know regime change, even though he doesn't use those exact words. And, and, and that's just such a psychopathic approach to take given the history of the, the country that we're talking about and the region, right? Like the reason why Iran is so fucked up is because the CIA overthrew um, uh, Mohammed Mossadegh in 1953 at British Petroleum's request, right? Like we have two invasions of Iraq by the Americans just in the past 30 years that just killed tremendous amounts of Iraqis. We have two invasions of Afghanistan, you know, one by Russia, one by um, you know, the United States and the UK. Again, tremendous amounts of, ca of casualties of innocent people and no actual effective nation building or, or like results on the ground, right? Like just death and destruction. No, it's caused tremendous harm to these societies. And uh, the idea that you're going to start another war is just mind-boggling. I guess they should just be honest and say this is not trying to make anything better. Just be frank about what you're trying to accomplish with this and why you're doing it. Because the idea is this is going to benefit anybody is just liable. Yeah. 
Finally, I think it's important to kind of end off this uh, podcast and this interview with some of the work, uh, interesting work that you've been doing on a project called the Iran Cables, and really the insight that you've been gaining into kind of Irani Iraqi politics. Um, what's kind of been the, the what describe the Iran Cables uh, to our audience, and kind of what's been the biggest thing that you've learned from doing this project? Well, the Iran Cables, uh, a project by the Intercept and New York Times, uh, to report on a cache of 700 uh, pages of documents from the Iranian Ministry of Intelligence. And it basically outlined the Ministry of Intelligence operations in Iraq during a period of 2013-2015. And so they show how the Iranians were operating in Iraq. This is the time of ISIS and how war was going and their relationships with the Iraqi politicians. And, you know, we knew that Iran had a deep footprint in Iraq. The thing that's interesting about the documents is that we've never actually seen from the inside how they think and how they operate, or at least, you know, one faction of the government and how it operates. And, you know, they're quite professional. They have a very professional intelligence operation. They really did have a deep control over Iraq, much deeper than the Americans, because they kind of knew everybody. They kind of spoke the language a lot more. They had deep relationships going back with individual figures for decades. Uh, they really won that war, not because they're more powerful or because they have more resources. It's that they were playing on a totally different level. They were deeply, deeply embedded in that society. And, you know, they weren't trying to destroy it or to kill everybody in Iraq. They were trying to stabilize it in a way which preserve their privileged economic and political access to the Iraqi uh, system. And of course, that's still antagonistic to many Iraqis. Nobody wants a foreign country, even a country next door, to be uh, having more of a say in the government than they do. And and it is really interesting to see, you know, how Iraqis respond to this Iranian influence in, in their politics and in their country's operations. But it's like, yeah, like your analysis of why Iran won the Iraq war is like, they live there, man. <laughs> like, at the end of the day, the United States is, is flying in, they're flying out, they don't speak the language, they don't know the culture. Iran is next door, they have, you know, the co-religionists, and it's, and, and ultimately, they live there. And, and, and you know, you have the, a deep dive on, on Qasim Soleimani and these Iran cable stories. And I think it's interesting, too, right? Like, uh, like a lot of people, I read that uh, 2013 New Yorker uh, profile on Soleimani. And the biggest thing that jumped out at me from that story was um, Canada's own, you know, war criminal fuck up, David Froome. And just how much damage his axis of evil speech did to the rapprochement that was happening between Iran and the United States in the early stages of the Iraq war. And just how fucked up that this one fucking idiot, you know, with one speech was able was was ultimately responsible for the deaths of like thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people, because ultimately after that, it was Iran was just like, well, fuck the United States. If they're if we're the enemy, then we're the enemy. Yeah, I mean, he's not even very smart. He just got in a position he could do that. And, you know, I don't think that, you know, maybe hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people could still be alive had he not uh, inserted this ideological bent into that speech and tanked the U.S. relationship with Iran and thereby ramped up the Iraq war and also the Afghanistan war in the long term. Yeah, it's very unfortunate. These uh, these small quirks of history 
uh, by people who, you know, you think you know better. Yeah. Well, Murtaza, thank you so much for coming on the show and for your time and talking about your work. Um, where can people follow your work? How can people keep track of what you're doing online? Do you have a Twitter account? You know, is this, what's the best place? Yeah, you can uh, see my articles on theintercept.com. And if you're on Twitter, you can follow me at M-A-Z-M-H-U-S-S-A-I-N. That's my Twitter handle. Awesome. Well, yeah, follow his Twitter account. It's 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 amazing. I uh, have recently started following Mortaza. It's great. Um, and if you like this podcast and you want to keep hearing interesting interviews like this, uh, you know, original content here in Alberta that you cannot get anywhere else, there's a couple things you can do. You can obviously share this content. You know, I don't care how you do it, whether it's through your social media platform, whether you're creating tapes and sharing them, um, share this content, get it in front of as many people as you can obviously like our content, you know, interact with it on social media. That's also very helpful. One thing that we are looking for more of is reviews, especially on Apple podcasts, but there's all sorts of places where you can leave podcast reviews. So if you're able to take 30 seconds out of your day to do that, we'd also really appreciate that. And finally, ultimately the biggest thing you can do to help this podcast is give us money. If you want to join the 250 other folks who regularly donate to us, you will do you will be doing incredible amounts of help for us as we keep this little independent media project going. So go to theprogressreport.ca slash patrons and put in your credit card and contribute. We would really appreciate it. If you have any notes, thoughts, comments, things you think I need to hear, you can reach me on Twitter at Duncan Kinney. You can reach me by email at Duncan K at progressalberta.ca. Thanks so much to Cosmic Family Communist for the theme. Thank you for listening and goodbye.